Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. Uh, thank you for joining us today in the Lewis Lerman Auditorium. I'm Andrew Parks, the Assistant Director in Internal Programs here at Heritage. Uh, I just want to take the opportunity to remind everyone attending in person to please silence your cell phones. And for anyone watching online, you're welcome to submit questions by emailing speaker at heritage.org. Uh, we are broadcasting and recording today's program and it will be available within 24 hours online for future reference. Now it's my pleasure to introduce the host of today's program. He is the Margaret Thatcher Fellow in the Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom here at the Heritage Foundation, Robin Simcox. Thank you, Andrew, and good morning, everybody. Or good afternoon, I should say. Um, thank you for being here today to uh, discuss this well, I'm sure it's going to be a very uh, interesting, be here for a very interesting panel and discuss a very important subject. Uh, the title of the event today is The Power of Counter-Narratives, Sufi Islam and the Rise of Wahhabism. We have two terrific panelists here to discuss it. Uh, on my immediate left is uh, Sharia Kabir. Uh, he's a Bangladeshi journalist, filmmaker, human rights activist, and author of more than 100 books focusing on terrorism, human rights, secularism, communalism, and the Bangladesh War of Independence. He was imprisoned twice in 2001 and 2002 for protesting against the Bangladesh Nationalist Party Jamaati Islami-led coalition government uh, and their sponsored minority persecution and was declared a prisoner of conscience by Amnesty International. Several international forums and human rights defenders campaigned for his release. He is the recipient of numerous awards for his contribution to Bengali literature and has made more than a dozen documentaries on Jamaati Islami, Bangladesh, and countering Wahhabism. Mr. Kabir, we're very grateful that you can be here with us today. Thank you. To his left is Hassan Hassan. Hassan is director of the Non-State Actors in Fragile Environments program at the Center for Global Policy. His research focuses on militant movements, nonviolent extremism, and geopolitics in the Middle East. He's a contributing writer at The Atlantic and co-author of the 2015 book, ISIS, Inside the Army of Terror. That critically acclaimed book was a New York Times bestseller and was translated into more than a dozen foreign languages. A native of eastern Syria, Hassan is also a senior non-resident fellow at the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy here in D.C. Hassan has written extensively on Sunni and Shia movements, society and politics in the Middle East, for Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy, The New York Times, The Financial Times. He's testified before Congress on extremism and regular appears on CNN, BBC, Fox News, and MSNBC. And I think this is perhaps the third time we've had you here at Heritage in recent times, Hassan, so you're like an old friend at this point. So very, very glad you could be here. Um, we will kick off with about 15 minutes each from each, uh, 15 minutes of comments from each panelist, then we're really looking forward to the conversation afterwards. So first, Mr. Kabir, to you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Robin, and uh, good mo good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'd like to thank, you know, Heritage Foundation for inviting me here to address, to say a few words about the ongoing, you know, incidents, what is going on across the world. Since 9-11, we are observing a kind of, you know, terrorism dubbed with religion, particularly dubbed with Islam. And it is uh, well known that who are responsible for 9-11, who have justified this attack. They are very well known. You know about Al-Qaeda. And now we are watching, since Syrian, you know, civil war, we are watching the rise of ISIS. 
And these Islamic militant outfits are quite well known in the West. But before the 9-11, the horrendous incident took place in 9-11, before that we have witnessed the killing in the name of Islam during the Liberation War of Bangladesh. In 1971, Bangladesh fought Liberation War against Pakistani Occupation Army. And during that war, Pakistani Occupation Army and the local collaborators, mainly Jamaat-e-Islami, they killed three million innocent people and they violated officially half a, a quarter million and unofficially it is half a million where women were being violated. And 10 million people were forced to leave Bangladesh and they took shelter in India, neighboring India, to save their lives. So that was the first, you know, and the worst expression of political Islam or terrorism in the name of Islam we have witnessed in Bangladesh Liberation War. And after that, we are watching the global rise of Islamic militancy. We have seen Afghan Jihad, we have seen rise of uh, Taliban, rise of Al-Qaeda, and now we are watching this rise of, you know, ISIS. And uh, what we are watching very recently, that after the humiliating defeat in Syria, both Al-Qaeda and IS have changed their war strategy. War means it is jihad strategy. Now they have decided to focus on South Asian countries, and they name it Ghazwai Hind. This is a word taken from one hadith that uh, they believe that just before the doomsday, the ultimate jihad will take place on the soil of Hindustan. Hindustan means in the Arabic map, it comprises with Afghan, present day Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka. This is the land in Arabic color, Atlas, you see, mentioned as Hindustan. So they believe that the ultimate jihad will take place in Hindustan, in the land of Hindustan. So they have decided to set up their regional network. Uh, maybe they are going to change their headquarters as well. And yeah, they are radicalizing Muslim diaspora in Western countries and even the Muslim majority countries. They have their tentacles, the organizations like Jamaat-e-Islami in South Asian countries, Pakistan, India, and Bangladesh. We have seen Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and Middle Eastern countries. We have Gemal Islamia. We have many, many outfits, militant Muslim outfits active in Islamic majority, Muslim majority countries. And they, this kind of terrorism and what they preach, that is that their political is a concept of Islam, is deeply rooted in certain, you know, interpretation of Islam preached by certain imams, you know, orthodox imams, starting from Imam Ibn Hanbal or Imam Ibn Taymiyyah or Imam Ibn Wahhab in Saudi Arabia. These people, they justified jihad. And their concept of jihad is to kill those people who do not subscribe your views. That is, it is the faith, other faith, other beliefs, or people belong to other lifestyles, these are the target, main target of the jihadist. And ultimately, they want to establish Sharia law or their Islamic hukumat, the Islamic rule, not only in the Muslim-majority countries, but across the world. That is the ultimate target. And as a result, you know, what we are seeing, that a kind of Islamophobia or, uh, you know, hate against Islam, it is also growing in the West, you know. The people, many people, my friends in Western countries, they said there must be something wrong with Islam. Why these people, all the terrorists, they belong to, they are preaching Islam and they belong to Muslims, you know. But well, it is not a Islamic things, you know. We are watching uh, terrorism in many, many other religions. We consider that Buddhism is the most peaceful religion, but in our neighboring country, in Myanmar, Buddhist monks are responsible for killing innocent Rohingya Muslims. And as a result, you know, now Bangladesh is sheltering more than 1.5 million Rohingya Muslims. They're the victim of genocide and mainly perpetrated by the Burmese army, definitely. But they were supported by some of the Burmese monks. One is Mr. Biratu, you know. Recently, last year, Time magazine, they made a cover story. They said the jihadi monk. So now we are watching monks among the 
uh, the jihad among the Mongols. But you see, recently we have seen one tragic incident in uh, in a mosque in New Zealand, the Christchurch Mosque. One fanatic, you know, he killed several, you know, Muslims, you know, those who went to offer their Friday prayers. And out of there were some Bangladeshis as well. But as a result, what we have seen in the last April, on Easter Sunday, three churches in Sri Lanka was being attacked by the suiciders. And not only churches, there were some hotels also. As a result, you know, more than 300 innocent people were being killed in Sri Lanka. And those are not only Christians. There were several Muslims, including one children, a grandson of our prime minister. His age was only seven years, you know, his name is Jayan. So these jihadists, these terrorists, they don't consider, you know, what is your faith or not. When we look into the casualties of 9-11, there were several Muslims also. So what we feel that, well, we, at one hand we are watching this terrorism in the name of Islam and a kind of, you know, Islamophobia or Islamobashing in the Western countries. But at the other hand, you know, there are people who consider that Islam is a religion of peace and amity. Islam doesn't subscribe such views that is subscribed by Abu Lala Maududi in South Asia or Hassan al-Banna in, you know, Middle Eastern countries. And that is unique thing, what we are also observing, that if you, you know, dub politics with Islam or politics with religion, definitely that will create a lot of anarchy, what we are witnessing right now in the name of religion or in the name of Islam. So the countries who are fighting, you know, war on terror, starting from United Nations to Bangladesh, Definitely we are, our government is also very serious about this terrorism, rise of terrorism in the name of Islam. And they have taken a lot of actions, the steps in order to curb Islamic militancy. But the problem is that the Western countries as well as many other countries, you know, they consider this kind of terrorism is a law and order situation. It can be handled with, by force. And it is something like mafia type of terrorism, but but I want to say that this terrorism is deeply rooted in certain faiths, certain ideas, and what they are doing that is in the name of Islam. So theologically, it is needed to be addressed. We have to address this terrorism, you know, militarily or politically, culturally. But there is a need to address this problem theologically as well. And that theology, theological address, that is the Sufi Islam. The Sufis who preached Islam in South Asian countries or other part of the world, they preached Islam of peace, amity, submission, and love for all. It is not only for the love for the Muslims. Recently, I made a documentary on Sufism focusing the Jalaluddin Rumi. You might know the name. Well, after, just after 9-11, Jalaluddin Rumi is a Sufi poet. And he was on the top list of the book, American books, you know, for subsequent two years. So people are now, not only in Turkey, they are now, you know, eager to know more about Sufi Islam. In my film, you know, I have shown two faces of Islam. One is the Islam of Al-Qaeda and Islam of terrorism and Sufism, how the Sufis are preaching, you know, Islam of love for mankind or Islam of humanist Islam or Islam of peace. So this is a contrast I have shown, and this is the first part of my documentary. I can I can ask my friends, you know, the flyer is there. He can distribute this flyer to you about the film. Soon it will be available in YouTube. So while fighting terrorism in the name of religion, what we feel that there should be a counter-narrative. And uh, when Western powers, you know, they fought communism in Soviet Union, fought uh, against communism in Soviet Union and Eastern European countries, there was a counter-narrative because, and we, at that time we read that, well, communi democracy is better than communism, that uh, in, communi in democracy there is freedom of expression, freedom of movement, freedom of speech, but in communi communism or in totalitarian system there is no freedom. So freedom became very important in those days, in 60s and 70s. That was a counter-narrative of Marxism-Leninism or communism, but now there is no counter-narrative of, you know, Maududism or Wahhabism or Salafism to fight the Islamic militants. You know, I do feel that there should be a counter-narrative. 
that must be you now derived from politics. That is, well, we in Bangladesh, it is a secular democracy. We are fighting for secular democracy. And whoever challenge these views, you know, secular democracy philosophy, definitely they're challenging. It is not a democratic place. Damati Islami don't believe in democracy. I do tell you that in Abu Lala Maududi, the founder of Jamaati Islami, during the Second World War, he wrote a number of articles praising Nazism and fascism. He considered democracy as an infidel idea. On the contrary, Nazism and fascism, they are the unique ideas that to be followed. So this is the idea of the fascist, idea of the Nazis. That's why we are asking our government that you have to ban politics of Jamaati Islami that, you know, is played hate against other people, that is responsible, that creating ground for terrorism, killing innocent people in the name of Islam. So these kind of ideas needed to be addressed properly. So I think I should stop now. And if you have any more question, you know, after, you know, Mr. Hassan and Hassan, we can respond it to you. Thank you very much. Wonderful. Um, thank you. And Hassan, please. Yeah, he's my friend, you know. Uh, yeah, he's my friend. Sorry. Well, he is just giving you the film that I mentioned that is about the Sufism. This is the flyer of that film. I requested him to distribute it to you. We run a tight ship at Heritage, as you can tell. Sorry about that. And uh, Hassan, please. Yeah. Uh, Thanks, Robin, for, uh, and the Heritage Foundation for inviting me again. Um, so one, uh, one, thing I wanted, uh, one thing I wanted to do is, uh, uh, and something I've been interested in uh, very much, especially with the kind of, uh, you know, since I focus on Syria and ISIS and the Middle East, with the defeat of ISIS uh, last year or earlier this year, uh, I, I kind of one of the thing one of the things I focus in uh, how th that kind of process of transformation how much uh, damage uh, and indoctrination these groups uh, you know uh, make uh, or inflict on communities that they control or at least uh, on some of these ideas uh, and then obviously uh, Wahhabism and how Wahhabism uh, influenced Sufism uh, over the past few a few decades and one way to uh, kind of explain this is. Uh, the, uh, through a story I used to hear when I was growing up in eastern Syria, uh, just uh, just to back up a little bit, the areas that ISIS controlled, uh, for example, over the past you know, since 2014, uh, are distinctly they have w distinct features. But one of the distinct features uh, uh, is that they used to be uh, historically strongholds for Sufism. Uh, and this includes Fallujah, uh, as you know, people will think of Fallujah here uh, through the kind of the Iraq uh, war lens. They think of like an extremism, Salafism. But in fact, uh, Fallujah used to be a Sufi stronghold. And uh, it's an interesting kind of uh, uh, case study of how can a city like that, which is, uh, you know, as Shahrar explained, very peaceful, very spiritual and kind of the, if you were talking about uh, Sufism and how can uh, through violence and war and stuff like that uh, produce people who can be, who react to certain realities. But that's, uh, uh, that's for later. Uh, so from Fallujah to uh, the Kurdish areas around the, uh, the Kurdish areas in North, uh, Eastern, uh, Eastern Iraq, all the way to Aleppo and including my areas or, uh, along the Iraq Syrian, uh, Syrian borders. Uh, used to be uh, strongholds for uh, a Sufi order known as uh, Naqashbandis. Uh, and the Naqashbandis, uh, for a long time, uh, they had activities there, and their activities increased around, like, in the 60s or the 50s, 60s of the, uh, you know, the 1950s and 60s. Uh, and uh, one of the stories I used to hear when I was growing up is how during Ramadan, for example, during the fasting uh, month of Ramadan, people would go and dive in the Euphrates River, uh, which crosses uh, our, our kind of our town. Uh, and uh, when they dive all the way to the, you know, to the bottom of the river, they start drinking there. Obviously, in Ramadan, you're not allowed to drink, but they drink there, and they say because God does not see what's going on there. So the the lack of awareness that how 
the, the kind of the moral, the moral, the moral of the story is that people didn't know much about the religion and they practiced it as a culture, as a tradition. Uh, these societies, again, from Fallujah to the Kurdish areas all the way to Aleppo, used, uh, they are and still, still socially conservative, uh, communities, but they are, they don't take religion very, very seriously. There's something above religion, which is conservative, uh, social con- uh, conservative traditions and so on and so forth. In fact, tribal laws usually uh, dominate more more than uh, religious laws, but also more than state laws in some in some areas. So, how could uh, an area like that uh, transform from being knowing ne- nothing about religion to becoming the heartlands of for jihadis uh, jihadis uh, in 2014 or after the war, uh, after the Syrian uprising and the Iraq War uh, over the past decade uh, or so? Uh, and I think one uh, uh, that transformation is very interesting. There's a long, obviously, story of how the, some of the transformation happened and how some um, uh, Wahhabism, for example, started to creep in into our areas. And that really uh, started uh, in the 1990s when a lot of people from the, uh, those areas, because of marginalization, because of economic marginalization, political marginalization, used to travel to the Gulf region, the Persian Gulf region, and start working there. And when they start coming back to their areas, uh, they bring with them Salafism, Wahhabist sort of uh, ideas. And they and, and because Salafists uh, do a lot of da'wah, uh, meaning they, uh, they, they give a lot of money to you know, spread their ideology, they usually send millions sometimes with, uh, with uh, trusted people to go back and build mosques and, and, and preach uh, their uh, version uh, of, uh, or their brand of Islam. But even though I think, uh, even though they still they they succeeded in building some of these, uh, you know, mosques and, and and establishing preachers that are loyal to their ideology, that ideology didn't take root until uh, later, uh, especially with the you know with the Arab Spring and and, and the exposure to the internet and so on and so forth. And uh, when the flow of ideas started to kind of help uh, build roots and build influence for this. Uh, ideologies. Uh, that's when you started to see uh, the impact of Wahhabism uh, into into the, uh, those areas. And uh, one thing about S- Sufism, even though it's a, I think the kind of one of the weakness of Sufism is it's uh, it, it does it's not active enough. It's not ambitious enough uh, compared, to, say, to the Salafists and the Jihadists who are more uh, in their DNA to spread their ideology, to go out there and kind of uh, become uh, almost militant, uh, not, not in the literal sense, to kind of spread their uh, their ideology. Uh, so that gives us a disadvantage in the fact that it becomes a receive on the receiving end of of these ideologies. And uh, one thing that uh, an interesting kind of uh, a factor that helps and enables Wahhabism and others to uh, to spread the ideology is that some of the concepts they bring in are not alien concepts, obviously. So when they talk about Tawheed, for example, Tawheed is one of the, Tawheed and Shirk, uh, monotheism and polytheism, these things are key f- key features of how Wahhabism come into, especially Sufi uh, areas, and they found actually fertile ground in spreading their ideology because that's, an, that's uh, there are so many other examples, but these two examples of two concepts they bring into our areas and other areas. Obviously, you have uh, the same thing happened in Egypt, in Libya, and elsewhere. But I'm just focusing on Syria and Iraq, and I think uh, sort of how they transform these ideas. So when they come to Sufi uh, Sufi uh, uh, strongholds and they say, you know that thing about you visiting uh, graves and. Uh, as, uh, kind of going around graves and uh, seeking blessings from graves and dead people that you think of as saints, uh, these things are polytheistic practices. They're not Islamic practices. So uh, that sort of uh, puritanical way of uh, of kind of going after certain ideas, that becomes an easy argument for Wahhabism and Salafism to make, especially that uh, Salafism for a long time, uh, and, and I'll come to kind of the counterpoint to that. For a long time, Salafism touted itself as a very simple idea, meaning uh, we, we're not we're not bringing any, uh, anything new. We are the original uh, uh, brand of Islam because Salafism comes from the word Salaf or ancestors, the first three generations of Muslims. Uh, in order to become Muslim, it's a simple fact. You just follow 
uh, and emulate the first generations of Muslims. These are the original uh, Muslims. So uh, how do you become Muslim? You just follow the, the example of the first three generations. So that's a, that has a strong, powerful appeal because you can easily just say that and, and, and run away. You know the journal, uh, the uh, mantra in journalism, uh, how to write your intro. You just say, what 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 could you say while you're running into to take the uh, train? Uh, you shout one sentence, and that sentence is usually the most important thing. Uh, so for Salafism, they can shout one sentence, which is, we are uh, following the examples of the first uh, three generations of Muslims. And that enabled Salafism to spread so, at least some of its ideas that a lot of people uh, started to see as just becoming aware of Muslim uh, uh, rules. So when they say Tawheed, meaning you have to worship only one God, uh, it's not enough to worship, uh, it's not even wor- uh, enough to worship just one God. You have to uh, distance yourself from other association with God, and they call that shirk or polytheism or association with uh, with God. So they say when, when you... Uh, uh, when you uh, respect saints too much, that's an association with God because you raise their, you elevate their status to the status of a, of a God or a, a deity of sorts. Anyway, so with time, uh, Salafist ideas started to trickle down into these communities. And when ISIS came in, for example, they built on those uh, those ideas. I don't think ISIS has left much traction in the communities, but it left something really dangerous, which is that a lot of people have become, uh, have entered this state of confusion. And I can sense that by interviewing people who lived in, under ISIS for like four years, five years, uh, who are not radicalized in the sense of, you know, in the counterterrorism field, but they're confused. They have to be taught now whether what ISIS told them is wrong or not. You know, that's why, that's where this effort comes in. We have to counter these ideologies by actually going and educating people about what ISIS said is actually wrong. Or even if they use certain concepts that are uh, fundamental in Islam, like Tawheed and Shirk and stuff like that, these are, uh, yes, these are concepts that exist. But how does ISIS explain uh, tawhid, or uh, another uh, another com- concept is wala al-bara, or loyalty and disloyalty, loyalty to Muslims and anything Islamic, and disloyalty to anything non-Muslim. Uh, disloyalty meaning you have to be actively against uh, anything non- non-Islamic. But that concept, even though it exists, the the divergence between how ISIS sees it and how mainstream Muslims sees it is almost unrecognizable. Like they're so, uh, uh, you know different. Uh, but they use concepts, they use uh, raw concepts to uh, drive their messages across and say, we're here, not as a gang or as a mafia or as an extremist organization, we're just, uh, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're just trying to implement uh, Sharia and uh, and bring in Islam, the true Islam, the true forms of Islam back into into the society. And that, in, in my opinion, does uh, does a lot of damage because because of what I call the acute awareness of certain concepts and, and the failure of the others, the counter, the people who are counter, who try to counter extremists, of actually not going and telling people that you're becoming aware of these concepts doesn't mean, make them uh, true, that the true Islam is uh, something else. This is not what these uh, extremists are, are, are telling you. Um, so uh, the the positive thing, uh, just kind of maybe to conclude, because I want to kind of keep uh, keep it brief, and uh, I'm interested in more questions because that that's more targeted. Uh, one one good news about how Salafism uh, might be rolled back is that, say, over the past uh, decade, even though uh, the the rise of the internet and and the satellite channels and so on and so forth over the past two decades. Um, uh, helped and enabled Salafism to spread some of its ideas. What the rise, what increased ideas and exposure to Salafism uh, did to Salafism also uh, has ba- negative uh, consequences on Salafism. Uh, example, uh, like I said, Salafism uh, always touted itself as ha- as having monopoly over the true interpretation of the original Islam, fundamental Islam. But over the past few years and decade, and probably, uh, but m- mostly over the past few decade, uh, few years, Salafism started to look so uh, crumbling from within that it's incoherent. Uh, so unlike or contrary to what Salafists say, Salafists are fighting each other. 
there's so many Salafists in a way that we're not aware of, like say a decade ago. A decade ago, when you hear Salafism, you sort of almost immediately know what, what a person is talking about. But now when you say Salafism, you immediately ask which Salafism? Uh, is uh, Wahhabism Salafism or is it the Egyptian Salafism Wahhabism? Uh, is Syrian Salafism the same as uh, Egyptian Salafism? So there's so many and that removes the monopoly, that kind of the power of a shout in one sentence to deliver a message. And it becomes a, a kind of contestation, kind of you contest your message. And I think uh, we've seen some fragmentation within Salafism, producing Salafi jihadists, producing some peaceful Salafists, uh, uh, producing apolitical Salafists, and so on and so forth. Uh, and I think that's, that's, uh, that's good news in the sense that you can actually now uh, try to uh, amplify uh, an alternative to, the, to, these, uh, to these groups. Sure. Thank you. Okay, thank you, um, Hassan. Um, let me uh, start with the first question, and I'll, I'll turn it over to you guys. I'm uh, I'm going to be careful, bearing in mind your last comment, not to essentialize Salafism too much. But if we go from the the basic proposition that you you both regard that there needs to be something as a counter narrative to Salafi jihadism, say. Who do you regard? Who is who is best placed to do this? Is it scholars? Is it uh, uh, former extremists? Is it local imams? And in what and what format do you think this is? This takes place in the most effective way. Do you think online messaging is effective? Do you think it needs to be kind of government facilitated conversations within the communities themselves? Um, I guess I'm, I'm wondering to what extent government can play a useful role. But but my my yeah, my main question, based on your comments, is who does this best and how? Um, and I will let you both have a go at it. But whoever wants to jump in first, by all means. Thank you. So uh, I, I, I mean, that's a, that's a good question. It's something I've been thinking about for, uh, uh, or keep thinking about. I, I think the short answer is you need credible messengers who deliver certain messages, because. The counter, the counterweight to extremism is there, exists. And I, I wouldn't say in, this, in like true, in, in, in original Islam, because that's, uh, you know, that's always contested. But in, in the form of, uh, almost uh, an ongoing revolution, uh, within, within the region, you can actually, you don't see it in mainstream media. You don't see it in, in, in DC think tanks. You don't see it in, in American media generally. But there is an ongoing revolution in terms of intellectuals who are challenging the core, you know, things that used to be uh, red lines for anyone to, uh, to you know, to, to uh, talk about. Now, because of YouTube, because of the, you know, the ability to just uh, a blog and, and, and YouTube and, and you can be, you can, ha you can have a YouTube channel that has a million subscribers and so on and so forth. So you don't need Al Jazeera, you don't need uh, Egyptian TV and so on and so forth to deliver your messages. So what happens now is that we have uh, a growing literature of people who are, you know, who are countering all these different ideas. And it's effective. So they, they are winning over individuals one, one at a time. But as a mass movement, uh, if you want to talk about who can uh, speak uh, on behalf of Islam and who can be, say, uh, counter these extremists, I think it's very, very hard. It's becoming very hard in the sense of kind of one platform. Why? Because, uh, say, over the past, uh, since 2011, Two things happened at the same time. Uh, there are people who are revolted against uh, political uh, elites in the Middle East, meaning autocrats and their supporters and support base. But also people uh, revolted against religious elites. Uh, they, uh, they revolted against establishments that are loyal to autocrats. And uh, the biggest mistake that clerics throughout the region made was to get closer to the autocrats rather than trying to deliver a counter message, a, a kind of an acceptable message. So now the problem with uh, the rise of authoritarianism, although especially over since 2013 and 14 after ISIS and so on and so forth, whether you're talking about religious authoritarian, authoritarian fanatics, religious fanatics, or uh, political, uh, uh, you know, uh, the counter revolution uh, led by Egypt, uh, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates. Uh, some factions within Libya and so on, Bashar Assad, obviously. 
Uh, that is anyone who is who gets closer to those ones and start defending them is immediately discredited by by the masses by the the audience that you want to target in order to uh, counter uh, counter extremists. So the rise of authoritarianism, uh, unfortunately enabled by also Western countries, because you have to deal with these authoritarian regimes when uh, Sisi uh, topples a, a, a democratically elected president. Uh, Obama immediately recognizes Caesar, for example, right? Uh, Trump now is supporting, is, is on board, fully on board with, you know, with Mohammed bin Salman and, and his uh, his uh, his uh, camp in the Middle East. That I understand where that comes from because you, that, you say that's the only alternative. Otherwise, you will fall to these things. But it's but it's not true because you're enabling authoritarianism, and that makes any message coming from authoritarianism immediately discredited. Um, to, so you can't you can't rely on those. Well, first of all, this problem, you know, very much is political. When I say that it is political Islam, think about the Muslim population across the world. Right now, we have nearly 1.6 billion Muslims, and I do believe that more than 90 percent Muslims. They do believe it, they live in faith, and they do not subscribe Wahhabi, Salafi, extremist Islam. But this is Islamist, those are, you know, Wahhabi, Salafist, or Maudu, followers of Maududi Hassan al-Bandra. They are very small in number, supporters of IS and Al-Qaeda. But they have arms, they have money, they have, you know, a strong ideological network, the global jihadi network they have already developed. And many, many, some countries are also supporting the Middle Eastern countries, the Pakistan and other countries. They are receiving enormous amount of fund from Middle East. In one of my film, you will find it uh, in the internet, you know, that is ultimate jihad. In that film, I interviewed one, uh, Saudi Islamic scholar named Dr. Irfan Alabi. He is now based in London, running an organization named Center for Islamic Pluralism. So, Dr. Alavi said categorically that in 2008, Saudi Arabia and other Muslim countries based in Middle East, they allocated 50 billion pounds for uh, uh, Muslim Brotherhood and Jamaat Islami focusing on South Asia. The think about the figure, 50 billion pounds. So this money is coming from Middle East. The respective governments, particularly the Muslim-majority countries, Pakistan, Bangladesh, or you know, Indonesia, Malaysia, the government must take a strong stand position to stop this supply of the money. Even the U.S. government must ask these organizations, even the Saudi prince become very liberal now. But what about the other sheikhs of Saudi Arabia? What about the you know other Middle Eastern countries? who are promoting, giving money to jihad and terrorism, promoting jihad through money and other things. So it should be stopped. The government must take actions. And the government must take actions against the organizations, terrorist organizations like Jamaat-e-Islami. In our first constitution, 1972, Jamaat-e-Islami and political Islam was banned because our founding fathers said it categorically that in the name of Islam, we have seen many, many wars and repression, tortures and genocide and holocaust. Now time has come to stop it. Islam or any religion, it is a very sacred matter, but it should be private. A state and politics should be separated from religion. That was our concept of secularism. So government must you know, come forward to establish, you know, promote secular democracy. Second thing is the curriculum. If you look into the curriculum, not only in the madrasas, even in the general curriculum, there are many, many elements that promotes, you know, particularly in the third world countries, that is promoting, you know, hate against other people, hate against West, hate against Western values, democracy, human rights, and, you know, humanism. So that needed to be addressed. And there are cultural aspects. When you say that home to be engaged, definitely the Muslim, it is mainly responsibility of the Islamic scholars the preachers, imams, they should tell the people, common people, you know, and Muslims that look what they are saying, this is not Islam. Imams play a, you know, primary role in the Islamic societies. Islamic scholars are there. Alems, whom we call alems, alems are there. But Sufi schools, well, there are a difference. There are some Sufi schools, you know, you mentioned about Naqshbandis, you know, definitely Naqshbandis are not so liberal like others, you know, followers of Rumi or what we see in Chishtia, Kadiriya, in 
South Asian countries. Naqshbad is a even a, a relatively, you know, they are militants. If, if you watch the situation in Chechnya, Dagestan, the Shamil Basayev, he's a follower of Naqshbandi Sufi, you know, they are in the name of Naqshbandi Sufism, they are fighting jihad there. So in my film, you know, one of my film, I mentioned that there are two kinds of Sufis. They roughly say that there are green Sufis and red Sufis. Greens are more pro-establishment, greens are more involved with politics and worldly things, but red Sufis, they are anti-establishment, they are more, you know, they are dealing with spiritualism, humanism, and, you know, those uh, charities and other things, helping people. So these Sufi schools, they needed to be acknowledged and they needed to be promoted. They need, they need support. When, you know, when Kamal Atatürk assumed power in Turkey, you know, definitely he promoted secularism, but at the same time he shut down all the Sufi centers in Turkey. But think about Turkey, definitely Istanbul people, they welcomed Kamal Atatürk, but as a result, what we are watching now in Turkey, for the last 17 years, it is the Islamists who are ruling Turkey. So that is also one danger that you cannot you know, shut down everything what is running by the reign of religion. There should be, you know, freedom of religion. So Turkish Sufism, in my film, I explained that. What Rumi said, writings of Rumi, it should be promoted. If Saudi government is promoting writings of Wahhabism, writings of Alana Abul Alamazudi or Hassan al-Banna. But there are few people to promote Rumi's writing. I quoted one poem written by Rumi, you know, very interesting. He said that in every religion there is love. But love has no religion. I do not belong to any religion. My religion is love, and every human heart is my temple. So this is a Sufi message of Islam, love for all, love for mankind. So that needed to be, you know, promoted by governments, respective governments, civil society bodies, Islamic scholars, cultural bodies, and, you know, it could be part of the civil society movement. But definitely the governments, particularly the Western countries, they must promote the organizations who are fighting terrorism in the respective countries, the civil society initiatives, the government, they need your support. Thank you. All right, we've got about 15 minutes, and so we're going to turn it over to questions. I'm sure there'll be a few. I'll try and get everybody in. Um, but if you guys could help me out on that by definitely just asking questions rather than comments, that would be awesome. Um, I'm going to start... Uh, the lady there. I think we have a microphone, although maybe we don't, but we're in a small room, so I figure it'll be okay. Um, hi, my name is Peter Real, and I'm a Muslim at Airport Security Security Washington. Um, I had a question about the Islamic Republic of Iran. Um, there's a lot of people that are just one question at a time? I yeah. think we're going to yeah. do one at a time and yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll speed up a little bit towards the end. Yeah, so I, I, I mean, I, uh, obviously, in, you know, Islam has so many sects and each, each one uh, has specific individuals who are credible enough to deliver uh, specific messages. So it can't be, Su Sufi Islam sort of stretches uh, across kind of Sunni, uh, at least Sunni, um, uh, you know, uh, Islam, but also uh, seen as kind of more encompassing uh, than than just uh, just Sunni uh, Islam, uh, so it's not it's not seen as a sect, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's seen as a kind of a, a way uh, of an, abro an approach. That's what it's called Sufi. Tariqa uh, Sufiya means a, a, a Sufi way of uh, preaching Islam or kind of worshiping. So I don't think no, I don't think it's just Sufism about like the Abadi or the Abadis, uh, you know. They're also, they're very limited, uh, you know, in Oman uh, and uh, some some corners, but mostly in Oman. So yeah, the, it shouldn't it shouldn't limit it to thing. Like, you know, the thing is, uh, so if you, uh, and this goes back to the first question, is you're you're you can't limit it to one form of uh, of some. Yes, so Sufism. Uh, Provides a counterweight, uh, but that's one effort that you have to support. Uh, there are other uh, there are other forms of Islam that you should support. Some people, for example, say the counterweight to uh, Salafi jihadists are uh, quietist Salafists, meaning apolitical Salafists who, uh, are the, 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 in the DNA of their kind of their uh, ideology, uh, part of their doctrine is that you can you cannot rebel against uh, a ruler. 
So you have to obey the ruler as part of the doctrine, as part of the creed that they, they believe in. And some people say because they are not going to rebel against a ruler, then that makes them a counterweight because they can preach a peaceful, uh, apolitical uh, counterweight to, you know, uh, a message to uh, uh, that's counterweight to a political Islam that preaches um, uh, fascism and other uh, other forms of uh, of hate. Uh, but I, d- I doubt. I mean, I don't think th- these uh, these are these are enough because you remember uh, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, for example, emerged out of Sufi order. Like the Hassan Benna was actually part of a Sufi order, but he broke away because he thought Su- Sufism is too peaceful. I, I agree with that notion, obviously, but they thought it's, it's too peaceful. It's not ambitious enough. It's not political enough. Uh, and you have other examples in Iraq and Syria where uh, some of the violence uh, or violent or- organizations emerged from uh, in the same areas that Sufism used to be a stronghold. I don't think there's a causation, but there's some sort of, you can find some correlation there. Okay. Okay, um, why don't we go front row here, please. And you know what, let's do two at a time because I'm, I do want to make sure everybody gets a chance to ask a question. So we'll go directly behind the gentleman there with the Redskins thing on, maybe? All right. Still learning my American sports here. I can hear you. There we go. Okay. Deborah Weiss with the Center for Security Policy. Um, there are some people who think Islam needs to be reformed, and there are others who think Islam cannot be reformed. It sounds to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that you were saying Islam doesn't need to be reformed because there are strains that are loving and peaceful and uh, just great, but not enough people know about it for some reason. If that's your claim, my question is, um, since Muhammad was a warrior and a soldier and ordered mass murder and did all, you know, as you admitted, the first three generations are following his example, and you want to address the problem theologically, how do you overcome that? Okay, so that's question one. And then, uh, Hi, my name's Chris Orr. I'm currently a Department of Navy uh, contractor at the Pentagon for a company called Cytocor. I'm also a former uh, security contractor in Iraq during the uh, height of the fight against ISIS or Daesh, if you prefer, and uh, I've used to be Heritage Foundation intern back in the day. Um, my question is primarily directed to Mr. Kabir, although I certainly welcome input from Hassan or Robin. Uh, you mentioned how ISIS is refocusing um, on South Asia now as a new battleground for their ultimate jihad. Uh, with that in mind, do they have the intent, opportunity, and capability to wage a full-scale war on the Indian subcontinent like they've done in Syria and Iraq? And if so, what kind of time frame would you think that could be taking place? All right, so we've got a theological question and more of a political one. Okay, the second question I'd like to address first, the... A strategy, you know, what you mentioned up there, you know, expressed in their concept of Gajwai Hind, they said that no, it is not necessary to maintain a huge army that they maintained during the war in Syria, jihad in Syria. They said that no, one individual can be trained, you know, to operate, you know, to carry out their mission. So now they have totally changed their strategy. Because maintaining a huge army, it is very risky, you know, strategically this is not, you know, possible uh, what they observed in Syria and, you know, war. So now they have changed their strategy, but they are, after radicalizing the youth, Muslim youth in not only the South Asian countries, but across the world, that is very, very serious issues. We have to adopt a de-radicalization policy, you know, the counter narratives are that how to de-radicalize Muslim youth in Muslim countries as well as in the Western countries. So that is very important. And there are potential, you know, people, with the, as I mentioned about the Rohingyas in Bangladesh, and now these Jamaat Islami or Islamist NGOs, they are trying to radicalize Rohingya Muslims. So this Rohingya problem, it not only, it can't be a problem of Bangladesh or it can't be a problem, bilateral issues, you know, the international community must come forward to address Rohingya issues. But if you keep them there in Bangladesh and exposed to those Islamists, you know, 
there will be many, many radical Rohingya Muslims there, and they will be easy to recruit for IS or Al-Qaeda. So that is also very much needed to address the security issues. And what you said about this, you know, Islam, whether it should be reformed, there is a debate is going on. Well, it is a very dangerous debate, you know. Islam is such a religion, you know. In all other faith, you can criticize, you know, the argument is there. Argument is you know, allowed in every other religion. But concept of argument was stopped in religion since 12,000, you know, 12 centuries. So you cannot argue whether it is Islam, right Islam or wrong, or you can reform Islam. Well, that's why, you know, I prefer that please allow the Sufis to talk on Islam, the liberal Islamic scholars are there. Because I have written a book on Tatarstan. That is the only, you know, Muslim-majority countries I found that most liberal, most secular one, because they promote Islam of humanism. In Tatarstan, they claim that there is no place of Wahhabism in Tatarstan. And they say that, they also say that, that religious tolerance, what I have witnessed in Tatarstan, it is something unique even in America also. They say that one indication how you measure a society that what, how far it is liberal or not. In Tatarstan, 33% marriage is interfaith marriage. There are Christian population, there are Muslim population. So they are promoting liberal Islam. And a state is supporting that. They call it Jadidism. The new interpretation of Islam. But they talk about peace, they talk about, but primarily, what it should be needed to address that all the religions, these are very private matter. These religions cannot have any space in politics and state affairs. If you allow, you know, Islam, the political Islam, you know, definitely, as uh, Hassan Hassan said, that there are 73 sects among the Islam. Which Islam is correct? Sunnis are saying that Ahmadis are Kafirs. They are not, mon they are not Muslims. But I found Ahmadis. They are very, very liberal Muslims. They are promoting humanism. The main slogan of Ahmadis is love for all, hatred for none. But Sufis and those, you know, Wahhabis, they have all in Pakistan already, Ahmadis are declared as non-Muslims. So better talking about the reforming Islam, when I talk about the saying that uh, Islam should be refor uh, reformed, and the next day these mullahs will say that Sharia Kabir is a kafir, and definitely no one is going to the Muslims and not going to listen to me. But leave it to the, you know, Sufis, let them talk about liberal Islam, Islam of peace and amity, that will work better, rather than if I say that Islam needed, you know, reform. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's such a complex uh, uh, question, so I'm not gonna answer, I'm not gonna answer it head on because you know if we, if we talk about reform in Islam, then you're talking about uh, lots of other things. But I th I think there are obviously I recognize there are a specific pro a specific problems specific uh, controversial uh, problems with any religion. You can pick any religion. And you can find that in the book, in the spiritual book. In Islam, I think the main problem is in the hadith, not in the, in the Quran, or at least in, in comparison. Uh, so that becomes, that's why the focus today is on how we can uh, question this idea of wh whether these hadith actually were said by by Muhammad or were made up or kind of trans. Because uh, a lot of these hadith were written 200 years after uh, after his death, while um, the Quran was written actually down during his, uh, there's a controversy, there was memorized and then written down. So uh, multiple people memorized the Quran. So the Quran is more credible in the sense that it was mem uh, memorized by dozens of people uh, around uh, around the, the Prophet at the time and was written uh, later, uh, but through, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, a kind of... Uh, verification process at the time. Anyway, so what we're saying is that there are specific problems that Muslims are dealing with today. Uh, some of these problems are already dealt with. For example, slavery. Uh, slavery existed when, when, the, when uh, you know, when slavery was uh, deemed uh, as not, uh, not legal uh, by, 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 you know, uh, by the United States and the United Nation was it, or the League of Nations, whatever. Uh, at the time, I don't remember the exact thing. Anyway, when it was banned internationally, Muslims immediately recognized as slavery uh, banned. And Muslim countries never 
uh, exercise slavery after that because they accepted immediately they accepted this is no longer uh, uh, part of Islam. Uh, obviously, some exceptions, some countries uh, took some time to kind of uh, accept that, but but the majority accepted accepted that. So what about, for example, beheading? Uh, most uh, Muslim countries today don't accept that. There are exceptions. There's Saudi Arabia and uh, what and ISIS, probably. They're the only ones who are, still accept beheading as, as a form of punishment. Uh, so th- some of these things are reformed already. But that's, I think, in my opinion, there are very specific questions, very in the minority of, uh, of the broader context. But one thing, I, I think, uh, to kind of get away from that question, because it takes a, a long time to explain and compare and give examples. One example why I say reform in Islam is already here uh, uh, is that you can actually be an extremist, say in 2000, and then in 2005 you become a liberal Muslim without having to invent a new Islam. You can just read uh, available literature and you start to actually accept a new Islam, not a new Islam, it's the same Islam, but accept a different understanding of Islam, embrace that interpretation without feeling that you are believing an incoherent message. No, it's a very coherent message, meaning all the uh, all your understanding of the text, the Quran and the Hadith and elsewhere, is coherently contributing to your progressive ideas and progressive way of, uh, of looking at it. You have examples of like real life uh, examples of people who moved from uh, understanding Islam in one way to understand Islam in another way without having to contribute their own ideas and say, I'm going to reinterpret this text. No, that text is already interpreted in some uh, in some available schools of thought. So it can actually just be uh, subscribed to existing schools of thought. So I think in, my, in that sense, Islam is uh, reformed Islam in, in, the, in the way you put it is already available, is already there. You just need to uh, accept it or reject it. A lot of people like Osam Bilad and others ac- uh, reject that. Uh, the majority of Muslims accept uh, accept that that moderate Islam. Okay, all right. Um, well, I'll go for the last two questions. We've got a gentleman here. Oh, we've got more hands coming up. All right, we'll do a super quick fire round if you guys promise to keep the questions quick and then we'll get out of here after that. Yeah. So we've got a gentleman there, second row. I saw somebody in the back row there, and then I thought I saw another hand, but uh, yeah, the fellow there, I think. Hi, Carl Golovin, a retired special agent, U.S. Customs. I was a 9-11 responder, domain reference, and ideal lives on.net. Uh, my question concerns uh, intelligence agencies. Uh, to what extent are uh, intelligence entities in that region and also from the West involved in actually radicalizing these factions or even yeah, entities such as ISIS, in order to prompt conflict, and, and then to order, in order to justify suppressing the conflict, and uh, in line with that false flag terrorism, the extent to which um, events are created in order to be blamed on a preferred enemy, as opposed to that uh, entity having created the event themselves. Okay, first question. Then, gentleman at the back. Oh, just yeah, just that. Um, Harrison Curtis, USAID. Uh, I had a question, uh, Hassan, or Mr. Hassan. You mentioned the scholarship surrounding the constant revolution that's going on uh, among scholars and uh, imams. How does someone who doesn't have as much experience uh, tap into that scholarship? Okay, thank you. And then final question, and uh, we'll do brief answers, as brief as you possibly can, such complex questions, but thank you. So hopefully brief. Uh, David Alfer, Institute for International Education. Um, both of you are embodying something that you've been speaking to. In one sense, there is no counter-narrative necessary. It's there. It's embedded within the religion. We don't need to identify a specific sect. It's throughout. This is Islam. And the vast majority of Muslims are not violent, even among Salafis. So that counter-narrative, that narrative is the majority, it is quite effective. Where's the blockage then? If we don't actually need a counter-narrative, but we have to get past some blockage that keeps it from getting to this small percentage that actually do become violent, what is that? I think you've spoken to pieces of that, but if you could expand on it a bit more. All right, so we've got uh, three questions. Intel agencies, scholarship, and why aren't more people like you guys? (laughs) I think it's... I'd like to respond to the last questions, you know. Sure, sure. 
Sure. No, no, what you said that is very much correct about the counter narratives. It is already there, you know, it already exists. What Hassan Hassan said that, well, it is up to you whether which one you are going to accept. Islam of peace and amity or Islam of uh, dubbed with terrorism or Islam, uh, political Islam. It is up to you. But what I feel that the state, the governments, they must promote those liberal views of Islam or liberalism or, you know, more widely we can say secular humanism. That is needed to be subscribed. That should be the policy of all the respective governments who are addressing war on terror or Islamic militancy. That is very much needed. It should be a part of the government policy. Sufism, Sufi Islam or Sufi liberal ideas. Or the, as I said that Rumi was very much secular human, you know, preacher. He talked about humanism and to some extent his, you know, many, many verses he said that, well, he's, he doesn't believe in particular religion. Very famous, you know, poem written by Rumi, you know, similar to our Lalon, you know, says that people ask me, who am I? I am not a Muslim, not a heathen, not a Christian, not a Magian. I am not of the East, nor of the West and goes on keep like this. So this is what Rumi. So, but Rumi is not getting the, the ideas, thoughts of Rumi's. Well, they are appreciated across the world. There no government, no institutional support is not there. There are many, many similar ideas in the Muslim countries. The liberal Sufi concept of Islam that they are limited, confined in certain groups, you know, in mazars, shrines, like that. But government must address, while I say that government must adopt a counter narratives that on, that is not, Sufi Islam is the only one, but that should be another one that is the secular democracy. That is, in Bangladesh, definitely our constitution is a secular constitution. But it should be promoted. And there are many, many, you know, verses in Quran, you can justify secular humanism according to Quran, you know, that allows, you know, that a pluralism is very much there. So these areas, you know, this part of Quran, this part of Hadith, and that should be the imams should be encouraged in their Friday sermons or in their, you know, while they're religious gathering. You should talk about humanism. You should talk about secularism that is found in Islam, that is needed to be focused by the government or the establishment. Okay. Please just mix them up. Uh, I think one, one thing I want to focus on is uh, uh, authoritarianism, uh, because authoritarianism does uh, per perpetuate this problem. And authoritarianism does another thing. And, and I think one... Uh, I wrote an essay recently about how ISIS took over our area and how much acceptance it actually had in some of those areas. And it's uh, unlike how people see it from outside, ISIS didn't, didn't have that, um, uh, you know, much traction on a local level uh, ideologically. And a lot of people kind of kept a distance from it. What does that tell you? It tells you that having authoritarianism in the region does, uh, you know, pr produces a, a very big problem. When there is a conflict, the state had for long monopoly over society that everything about the society is run by the state. There's no civil society. So your proposal about civil society and how to use civil society to counter extremism is actually spot on. Because what happens is once once the state collapsed in Syria, in much of Syria, what happens was the extremists took over vast areas without actually much effort. They just needed to be uh, savage and make people think twice before they rebel against uh, ISIS. So everyone was subjugated almost automatically. Why? Because there's no local uh, antidotes uh, to the to these uh, to this organization in the sense of like being counter uh, kind of uh, ambitious and active in the same way. So what happens is once the state uh, collapses, once the state no longer exists, the society is helpless. It cannot actually push back against uh, extremists. What they can do is Stay at home, lower your head, and don't do anything troublesome. So ISIS doesn't uh, doesn't kill you or kill your uh, son, or so on and so forth. So uh, I think that's a that's a very critical thing. That's why uh, throughout the region in Libya, Iraq, Syria, uh, Afghanistan, all the areas that saw conflicts, ISIS and extremists uh, became dominant ideas. Not because people like these ideas, just because they are more organized. And they are more brutal, and these states are no longer, they, they, they didn't leave anything behind that actually pushed back against these ideas. While elsewhere, jihadists didn't have much traction, say, in Saudi Arabia, in, uh, in uh, even the most brutal uh, countries or kind of repressive 
uh, countries, uh, they didn't have much traction. That tells you one thing. It tells you that ISIS uh, and, and these ideas only emerge uh, during times of crisis, times of uh, conflict. And as Hugo, uh, you know, said, uh, no army can defeat an idea whose time is now. And these ideas exist. These ideas of saying, you know what? If I take over your society after the state collapses or after the Americans reached uh, occupied Iraq, then I, not the peaceful Sufis, can deliver what you want, which is pushing back against the occupation, pushing back against these dictatorships, pushing back. The, because these ideas are more appealing in times of crisis because they say, I'm going to behead anyone who resists me, stop me and stuff like that. So a lot of people say, you know what? I'm going to just uh, sit back and not think of, or not do anything uh, crazy and just stay at home. So the jihadis no longer have to worry about who's uh, in those societies, uh, who's going to be uh, going against them because they know these societies don't have the uh, infrastructure for resistance. So all they have to do is look forward and fight the enemy. All right. Um, that makes sense. It makes sense. Thank you, Hassan. Um, Thank you all for being here. Uh, I think it's been a really great discussion. Please thank our two excellent panelists.